So uh, if you're if you're new and uh, and haven't necessarily heard, I'm trying to preach through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, so it's it's one of those things that's kind of a, a chance for us to get an overview of each book of the Bible, dive in a little bit into each book, to really preach through the whole Bible in any sort of depth. I know I've heard from a couple different pastors I told about, and they said, oh, I know somebody who did that, and it took them 20 years. So uh, really trying to rush things here, you know, uh, as we get through it together. So uh, we know the concept here. Uh, for some of you, it may become a, uh, a shock to the system when we go back to what I usually do, because usually, this is an exception, usually I work in three different books. So I'll work in three different books throughout the year, and we'll go through about one to three verses at a time. And so that's what I'm going to begin to do in January. We'll go back and we'll look at Mark and Jeremiah, and we'll finish up the book of Jude. And when we finish up the book of Jude, we'll head into the book of Hebrews. So today we're looking at Hebrews. I'm going to give you a little overview of some things in Hebrews, looking at some different passages. But uh, next year we'll begin to preach it a little more in depth. Um, so wanted to mention that to you for all who care. I'm sure there's one. Uh, and then... Uh, We'll talk to you a little bit about Hebrews. Hebrews uh, is an interesting book because we don't know the author of Hebrews, which reminded me that about a year ago, Jeopardy had a, 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 uh, just a travesty of a question. I think it was the final question on Jeopardy, and they asked people, which is the Pauline epistle that has the most Old Testament quotes? And Jeopardy's answer was Hebrews, but we don't know that it was written by Paul. And all I could think is if, if I finally made it to Jeopardy and that was my final question, I got it wrong because I said Romans, which is the actual only answer that we would know, I would start flipping some things on Jeopardy. Because <laughs> it's a Bible question, it's a final question, I can't get it wrong. Anyway, uh, so we don't know, we don't know. There are some guesses out there. I'd say it's pretty likely it's not written by Paul because Paul always identifies himself in his letters. And, and there's no identification given here. We know that whoever wrote Hebrews knows Timothy, because Timothy comes up at the end of Hebrews. So that gives us, okay, it's somebody in that first century. There are some other markers. The writer of Hebrews talks about the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrifices being made there. And we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So, so Hebrews was written probably shortly before that happened, if we look at different context clues. So if you care, there's an early church father who says Barnabas wrote it. So some people say, well, maybe Barnabas, who spent some time traveling with Paul, wrote it. Uh, some other thoughts. Luke, uh, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts, there are some words that only Luke uses that also come up in Hebrews, but they could just be familiar with similar literature. Um, and then it could it possibly be there's two other people who are pretty prominent in early church circles, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is listed as the first of that pair and listed as a leader of a church and a teacher. So possible that Hebrews could be written by a woman. We don't know. But Priscilla was an early church leader. And then also Apollos. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about Apollos and those who are following after him. Apollos uh, is mentioned in Acts as being extremely uh, well-trained and educated. In uh, he, he was a Jewish man, well-educated well in Greek circles. The thing we know about Hebrews, one thing I can tell you, is that the writer of Hebrews is basically the Shakespeare of the New Testament. He knows so many different words. He's got exceptional Greek grammar. Uh, it's about as good as you can find as far as a well-written book in the New Testament. So that kind of fits with the picture of Apollos, but we don't know. We don't know who it is. It's kind of fun to think about it and wonder. It comes from the first century. It comes from an early uh, believer in the church, 
and that's exciting to hear. Written to Jew Jewish and Gentile Christians around 68 to 69 AD, and <coughs> written to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's why so many Old Testament quotes in Hebrews, he incorporates a lot of scripture in the book to show us how Jesus is our advocate, our defender, our example, and our high priest, and encourages us to focus on Jesus. And how great is that? No wonder I want to preach on this book, because that's the focus. So we'll look at three different passages today. First, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So this passage talks to us about Jesus, the, the empathizer, Jesus who empathizes with us. Uh, and what a difference it makes to know that Jesus understands what I'm going through. Uh, now, when the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who's ascended into heaven, it's Jesus, Son of God, but he's not one who doesn't understand us. He empathizes with us in our weaknesses. He uses a Greek word here for empathize that I believe you'll recognize. It's the Greek word sympathē. It's sympathy. That's the word. It's, that's exactly where we get our word sympathy is this word right here. The writer of Hebrews is also the only person in the Bible who uses this particular word, sympathy. He's the only one who knows that word, apparently, or uses it in regular circles. Again, that's not unusual for Hebrews. A lot of cool words. He's the only one who knows them. Uh, it, it's, it isn't actually used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament either, except for in the book of 4th Maccabees. It says, God sympathized with us, so he gave us the law. And he may have that in mind here, this idea that God cares about us, so he speaks to us through the law, and now he's speaking us to, to us through Jesus, who's experienced life as we do and understands what it's like to live life in our shoes. That's the idea here. Um, the uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who I like to quote any time that I can because he famously, before he was martyred, said, I don't care what they do to me, they could chop me up and they'd find written on every piece of my heart the name of Jesus, which I just think is an awesome quote, just a, a, a hardcore quote. If they chop up my heart, they're going to find Jesus written every piece. Uh, Ignatius said, Suffer me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. If any man has Jesus dwelling in him, let him understand what I desire and have fellow feeling with me, knowing what drives me. Suffer me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. At the core of the word sympathy is the word passion. So what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus shares our passions, our heart, the experience that we know in this world. Jesus sh shared that at his very core with us. And that's what Ignatius says in this little line here. He says, I want to share the heart of God. And if you understand what I'm all about, you'll have this fellow feeling with me. Fellow feeling is that word sympathy uh, translated in Ignatius's letter. So having a fellow feeling with us. Uh, it means so much to me, this idea in Hebrews, which is carried throughout the book. In fact, I could probably do a whole series on Hebrews 2 where, uh, for Christmas, because it's really a whole Christmas passage about how Jesus shares in our humanity so that by sharing our humanity, he can give us victory over sin and death and, and gives us that great picture of the incarnation, the whole incarnation pro project. 
And I have to admit, as I've been thinking about this passage this week, Jesus empathizing with us, Jesus sympathizing with our situations, understanding what it's like to be us, sharing in the heart and the passion of human beings, yet doing so without sin and with perfect devotion to God, I've been brought to tears a few times. Because my whole life, I've thought of myself as a pretty empathetic person. Um, I remember when I was working with our, our youth pastor that we had, first time in my dad's ministry that we had a youth pastor. I was 17, we moved there, and so I was, I was experiencing some mentoring with him over a couple years, and we would do an every week basketball uh, ministry. And I remember talking to him after one of these times and saying, man, I just care so much about the, pe- the guys that are coming to this basketball Um, these basketball games. And I think about throughout the week how I can help disciple them, how I can help uh, call them to a life that's different with Jesus. And I remember my youth pastor saying uh, that, you know, it's great. It's great that you have that heart, but understand that's dangerous in ministry. And he was 100% right that it's dangerous in ministry to care that much about people because you're going to find yourself in situations where all of a sudden you're you're just so wrapped up in it you can't see the overall picture. You get so involved. And and as I was thinking about this, it's all swirling in my mind, I realized that a lot of times the empathy and the compassion that I have isn't necessarily the same as what the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus has in this passage. Jesus has a level of empathy and sympathy, compassion for people that go beyond the human earthly level. Because part of it might be like me. I have a, I have a, a personality, uh, just a quirk, whatever you want to call it, uh, wherever I am on the various uh, horoscope-like personality things that are out there, like figuring out I've got that super high reading and, and compassion. Uh, it's just part of who I am innately. But a lot of times when I look at it, it comes down to something like people-pleasing. I want people to be happy and like me. I want people to appreciate me and feel good about me. I want to make people feel better. And that's not really what we're talking about here with Jesus. Jesus doesn't empathize with me. He doesn't share my passion so that I can feel better. Jesus empathizes and shares my passion so that I can come before the throne of God with confidence, knowing that I have someone on my side to call me out of darkness and into light, to restore what the sin and brokenness inside of me has taken away from me because he understands what it's like to go through life in my shoes, what he he understands to go through life as a human being with all the passions and desires that we know, he can speak to us and call us to a different kind of life. So when my youth pastor was saying that to me, he was saying that you can't lose track of what true ministry is, which isn't just about really caring about people and being compassionate and empathizing with people in their situations, but doing so in a way that, that sees the light that people have been meant to experience and the wholeness that they're meant to know before the throne of God, which is displayed for us in who Jesus is as our high priest. This is a big concept in Hebrews that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who wants to make everything right between us and God. He's the one that when we come before the throne of God, he's standing there to say, this is my child. I have chosen them. I want relationship with them. I understand everything that they've gone through in this life. And I've got a plan to restore all that's broken. I've got a plan to make everything right that's wrong. I know all that there is to know about this this bedraggled Quincy that's come before the throne. I've got a plan to make him full of 
of glory and light. I know you look at him, you can't believe that would be the case, but I've got a plan and this is how it's going to come about because I've experienced life as he has. Without sin, I can offer him that life. It is just an amazing concept that the writer of Hebrews so brilliantly brings out in this book. And I want to bring that into my life. You know, I want to not only care deeply about my wife and my children because that's what I'm supposed to do as a human being and a husband, uh, because it's easy for me to do because it's this, this heart within me, but I want to have this mindset of Jesus that in every situation I'm bringing in the idea that there is immense light and glory and healing and wholeness possible before the throne of God and everything that I say and do, every, every attitude and nonverbal communication of my life can help bring people that I love, all of you and my family and my kids, before the throne of God in the presence of Jesus or it can be about me and what I want. And man, so I've been brought to tears thinking about that this week and what true empathy looks like as it's revealed in Jesus. Let's continue. Uh, just an amazing book. So many things to point out. Uh, but we'll look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 6, 1 through 3. Now, if you look at Hebrews, you'll find that there's a few chapters that he starts off with the word therefore. So you could go through Hebrews and you could say, oh, here's a therefore. And you can really see him moving his argument from one point to another with the therefores. And there's one here in chapter 6. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So we, we talked about Jesus, the, the empathizer, and now we're going to talk about Jesus, the enlightenment. Uh, now, I love the opening of chapter 6. Because the writer of Hebrews says, let's leave behind all the elementary teachings. You know the basics, he's saying. Now let's leave the basics behind and go to where the real meat is. You've, you've been introduced to faith. And you know all that you need to know about faith. So let's move on to the next step. And I want you to notice the things that he mentions here. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Of faith in God, let's move on from faith in God. We understand that's a basic tenet, but we're moving on from that. Instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You know what I notice when I read this list? How many of these things Christians have fought wars about over the years? <laughs> and how many of these things Christians have formed denominations about because they disagree with each other about the basic, these basic truths. So over the years, Christians have read Hebrews chapter 6 and said, we're not ready to move past the basics. We're going to fight each other about them for a while, and then maybe someday we will. But if you go down through this list, you'll say, what's left? At some point, you say, what's left? What is, what is left beyond these elementary teachings? I've been hearing about faith in God my whole life, but that's basic. That's foundational. I'm meant to move to something else. I remember hearing about repentance from sin my whole life, but that's basic. I meant baptism. That's, that's supposed to be really important. Eternal judgment. People are always talking about when the world's going to end. Leave that behind. All these things he lists before us because what the writer of Hebrews is pushing you towards, which we're about to read in chapter 12, is to say all of that stuff is just meant to point you to Jesus. 
to the one who empathizes with us, to the high priest that we've been sent, to the one who falling in love with him, knowing his reality in our life, knowing him more and more is what this whole project is all about. It reminds me a lot, we talked a little bit about Paul in Philippians chapter 3 saying, I've got all the credentials of a religious person, but I consider that all garbage compared to Jesus. I consider that all, you know, refuse of the worst kind that you wouldn't even talk about in polite company compared to Jesus. It's a very similar concept here for the writer of Hebrews. Saying everything outside of knowing Jesus, having his life, his mind, his heart, his passion revealed in my life, that is what this is all about. He is the enlightenment that you're searching for. So many times I see uh, around me throughout the world, I see people talking about uh, karma. I see people talking about uh, reaching a state of enlightenment, a state of nirvana. And, and I even see it sometimes creeping into the church. And what the writer of Hebrews would say, there is no such thing as karma. There is no such thing as nirvana. There's no such thing as paradise outside of the person of Jesus. We sang about earlier, he's got a room in his father's house for me. That's heaven. Heaven is Jesus saying, I've got a room for you in my Father's house. I've got a place for you next to me because of the life that I've lived on this earth, because of how I brought the presence of God into human existence. There is a place created for you to continue that existence forever before the throne of God. And all you need to do every day is fall more and more in love with that Jesus who's called you to that place in that room, that Jesus who's, who's invited you into this space where God, the presence of the immortal, the invisible, the glorious God enters into every moment of your existence. From when you brushed your teeth this morning, I hope you did, to when you came to church, to when you go home and take your nap, whatever you're involved in, the work week ahead, Jesus wants to flood every moment of that, and that's what it's all about. Everything else is basic. Everything else is just the building block so that you would know Jesus and fall in love with him. And let's look at how he brings this about, uh, or, or she, whoever wrote Hebrews, brings it about in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So this falls directly after Hebrews 11, which is a great chapter called, it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith, where he talks about uh, people in the Old Testament uh, who've displayed faith and how that revealed God's presence in this world. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, here she says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the triumphant conclusion of, of Hebrews. It has this idea of everyone who's gone before us gathered as a stadium full of spectators to cheer us on as we follow after Jesus. Always a comforting passage, uh, I think, to share with people who are mourning the loss of a loved one. Uh, because what the writer of Hebrews says is, hey, don't think that that person isn't still cheering you on. Cheering and rooting for you in, in how Jesus is revealing himself in your life. And then presents this idea of let us fix our eyes on Jesus. See, that, that is where chapter 6 leads you to. You have to read another five, six chapters to get there. But once you get to chapter 12, he says, this is what it's all about. All the foundational stuff was so that you would fix your eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and finisher, the author and finisher, uh, your, your 
translation might have a different word there uh, because, again, it's one of those words that the writer of Hebrews knows and basically nobody else does about this idea of Jesus being the one who blazed the trail. Jesus being the one who God wanted to unite himself to human beings to show the entire universe who he is. That's the reason he created us. That's the reason we're different than killer whales or gorillas or whatever else. We're different because God said, I want to show the universe who I am through you. And Jesus is the one who blazed that trail. Jesus is the one who made that a reality. And not only that, he's the one who finished it. Jesus isn't, isn't somebody that says, well, you started it, now I'm going to finish it. He started it and he finishes it. He looks at our lives and says, let me take the, the reins, let me take control, let me rule because I'm going to bring it about. It's not something that you have to accomplish. It's my will and my uh, uh, desire to win that's going to take over. And, and of course, the writer of Hebrews brings up this great image of a race. Some of us are running people. Some of us are not. That's okay. Uh, but you, if you've ever tried to run in your life, whether you decided to try at the age of six and gave up then, perfectly fine, no judgment. But at some point in your life, you knew it was difficult to run and difficult to win a race. Uh, you know that there's, there's some training that requires to be successful in winning a race. I've, you know, beaten friends in races, but I've run, run in 5Ks and never have I come close to winning a 5K. I've gone and, see, and saw uh, Josh and now Jeremy running in cross country and just, you know, just taken away by being at the finish line and seeing these people finish way before anyone else. Like, what does it take? And the one thing I noticed is that they don't seem to have eaten as many donuts as I have. And, uh, and it, maybe that helps with carrying you across the finish line. Uh, but, you know, it's just like, what does it take? It takes an immense amount of focus, immense amount of training. You have to get your body in the right shape. You have to not only have, you have to kind of shut off your mind of the kind of effort it's going to take and the kind of pain you're going to have to go through to get to the end of that race. And as, as I look at it, I say, I'm never going to be able to do that. I'm never going to bring that about, especially now that I'm 40. I'm just probably not going to be able to ever, no, there's no probably. I'm just not going to be able to do that. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews says, that's okay, because we've got the starter and the finisher who wants to come and live his life inside of us. And all I have to do, the only thing I'm asked to do here is to, uh, what, what I just want to use I, I know the old NIV uh, versions of this. I just want to make sure I'm using the right. Uh, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. All I have to do is be willing to let that stuff go that is just hampering me from experiencing the winner and the champion taking over my life. There are things that are going to weigh him down. Uh, I, can, I can say to Jesus, oh, Jesus, I want you to finish the race of my life, but I'm not quite ready to, to let this go. It's this 500-pound weight of guilt that I'm carrying around. Don't, I'm not really to let that go, so can you carry me to the finish line? Makes no sense. Makes no sense for you to do that. He's, he, it's not going to help him in a race. Uh, Jesus, I'd love you to finish the race in my life. I'd love you to, to finish what you started and bring me to where I'm supposed to be as a human being. But I've got this 700-pound weight of lust, this 700-pound lust gorilla strapped to my back. And I want to carry that with me because I'm not ready to give that up yet. And it's just an immense part of who I am. Whatever it is in your life, we all know there's that one thing in your life that, you're, that is a struggle to give over to Jesus. And this passage says, all I can do is, is nothing of my own. It's, it's him taking over my life. It just needs me to say, I don't need that. I need you, Jesus. 
this carrying this around is not going to help me get past the finish line. I need to cling to you, so I'm going to let that go. Uh, Another thing that I love, last little thing I love about this passage is this whole idea. Jesus said, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, and you understand the joy is us, the joy is, is us forever in the presence of the Father. That's the joy, is his relationship with us, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. All kinds of athletic metaphors. You know that kind of taunting thing that, you know, you can get penalized for? Well, in this passage, Jesus is taunting the cross, saying, I I don't care what the cross has to offer. You think the worst the world has to throw at me is going to affect me and my love for you, is going to interrupt me from accomplishing God's plans in your life? Think again. It's not going to stop me. I disrespect everything the world tries to do to prevent me from accomplishing God's will in in your life. It has no hold over me. Understand, it's not going to prevent me from doing what I want. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a, a, a metaphor in Ephesians and Hebrews and in Acts. It talks about how Jesus, he, he endures the cross, he raises from the grave, he has all this victory, brings this, uh, this life that has always been designed to happen, this unconquerable life, and what does he do with it? He goes and sits down. He goes and sits down. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, he went and sat down. Uh, you guys don't seem excited. But the, the, idea, the idea behind Jesus and what he's done for us is that Jesus himself is the author and perfecter of our faith because he knows it's not about him. It's about the power of God working in his life. It's about the power of the Father accomplishing the Father's will. It's about complete surrender to the Holy Spirit, knowing it's not about me. It's about the love of God doing what God wants to in my life. It's about God's plans being accomplished for those that he loves, and that's the whole purpose of his existence. So when he experiences that life and that victory over death, when he lives that resurrected presence in the throne of God, all he has to do is sit before the throne of the Father and say, do what you want to through the Holy Spirit, pouring out my life in these people. It's already done. I can trust you to take over. So that's why when I embrace Jesus in his life, that's the life that I live into. It's no longer about my talents and abilities. It's no longer about if I can muster up the strength, pull myself up by the bootstraps, can I finally get it together? There's none of that. All I get to do is sit in the presence of Jesus and know that he's going to bring me that life. Man, leave everything else behind. Experience that. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word that gives us this hope, Lord, that we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to uh, finally get our act together. Lord, all we have to do is come before you and surrender all that we are, die to the self, leave everything behind, know and love only you and you alone. Lord, help me to live this way. Whatever it is that I'm holding on to, Lord, whether I recognize it or not, show it to me and help me learn how to let go. Whatever it is that feels central to the core of who I am, whatever I'm holding on to so that I can maintain the illusion of control over my existence and my future, help me to surrender that to you, Jesus, to know that you're the author and the finisher, that you are the champion who is seated at God's hand, experiencing the power, the life, and his presence that, you've all, that we've always been meant to, and we can experience that in you through your Holy Spirit that you've so graciously given to each one of us to know. 
Lord, help us to leave everything else behind, all the elementary teachings, all the sin that so easily entangles, leave that behind and come to you, our great high priest, who, does, who understands and sympathizes with us in our weakness, that we can approach the throne of grace and find confidence to help us, with confidence to find grace to help us in our time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're able, please stand with us and worship as we close together.